Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your faithful, trusty, loyal, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool show for you today. We're talking to the guys at Inversion Art, and it's a very interesting accelerator program that offers community and connections and capital to artists. And what I love about what these guys are doing is that they're innovating. They're creating a new model for artists to grow and learn and elevate their practice and elevate their arts business. I've been fascinating to see all the innovation happening in the art space over the last 10 years, especially largely driven by tech. But, you know, let's face it, our world hasn't really seen a whole lot of innovation over the last, well, I don't know, two, three hundred years, at least on the business side of things. Certainly artists are innovators. Certainly artists are innovating all the time, of course. However, on the business side of being an artist, it's kind of been limited to things like, oh, I don't know, art school, white cube galleries, art auctions and art museums. That's kind of been it. And in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a lot of innovation in the art space driven by tech, primarily around the commerce side, connecting buyers and sellers, you know, so-called dating apps for artists and art buyers. And I think jury's out in terms of how those really do. Obviously, I hope for artists' sake that they do great, but the issue is fundamental in that supply outstrips demand. So we've got to stoke demand for art. But anyway, that being said, we need more innovation. And we need innovation in different areas, not just in the commerce side of things, but obviously we need innovation on the tool side. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of tools being created for artists to make new kinds of art and new mediums and new ways, whether those tools are things like AI or whether it's mediums like NFTs. These are all very exciting, new, rich areas for artists to start playing in, say nothing of things like generative art and animation, that kind of stuff. But We need not just tools and not just commerce, but we need career development. We need other options besides art school. We need new platforms for artists to learn, share, and grow. We need spaces for artists to develop, right? And if you're a tech entrepreneur and you have a good idea, you can 
find mentors and you can find incubators to go and help you develop your idea. But artists don't have that, or at least historically. I mean, sure, there are grants and there are residencies and things like this, and those offer some help. But again, we need more innovative approaches. And what can we learn from the tech space, for example, and bring over into the art world? And so today's show is really interesting and exciting because we're talking to Joey Flores and Jonathan Neal, who are part of the core team over at Inversion Art. And it's an accelerator program that offers community connections and capital for artists. It's fairly new. So you need to check them out at inversionart.com. Joey, I've known for a couple of years now, really passionate guy, artist first and entrepreneur second, I think. Joey, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I think that's right. And Joey's managing director and founder of Inversion Art. And he is a 20-year startup company veteran. He had some success in the music space in tech and was part of a Y Combinator-backed company and had a successful raise and uh, eventually sold the company. And so Joey brings this rich experience in tech in terms of music and in working in that culture and raising money and developing his tech. And he's bringing that ethos, he's bringing those learnings over to the art world, which I think is just phenomenal. And we're talking to Joey and we're talking to Jonathan, Jonathan Neal, who's a co-founder and partner over at Inversion Art. And Jonathan is an educator, arts educator, writer, critic, editor. He's the founding director of the Center for Business and Management of the Arts at Claremont Graduate University and of Sotheby's Institute of Art Los Angeles. And he's a contributing editor at Art Review and a board member over at Defy Ventures. So this show is really cool. I really enjoyed this episode and talking to these guys because I think they're doing important work. So without further ado, let's get into this episode and hear from Joey Flores and Jonathan Neal from Inversion Art. Joey Flores, Jonathan Neal, welcome to Not Real Art. Yeah, thank you. How's it going, Scott? Good to be here. Good to see you guys. So you've been busy. Inversion art. <laughs> Indeed. You've been uh, following us since nearly the beginning. So yeah, we've been pretty busy. Well, for the sake of our listeners, we'll level set by saying, Joey, you and I go back a little bit. We met, I don't know, through mutual contacts over a year or more ago, and you shared your story and your vision for what inversion art was going to become. And Man, oh man, you've been busy since we sat down over coffee that day and you've made uh, progress. I'm not even sure, Jonathan, if you were with on the team at that time with Joey, but here you are now. Welcome to the team, Jonathan. Yep. Yeah. It's been some time. I think at the very beginning, Joey had been working on this for a number of months before we even began having conversations about what Inversion Art would turn into. So what was it about Inversion Art, Jonathan, that attracted you? Well, so for about a decade, I had been building and running graduate programs in arts and cultural management and business, really professional programs designed to help students learn the business of the arts, the logistics side, as I used to to call it. And increasingly, I had focused on entrepreneurship as a way of getting students to think about new ventures, new initiatives, new enterprises in the art and cultural sphere as the most effective and quickest way to make change in that space. We have a lot of very ambitious and very idealistic students who come through our programs and they want to see these big institutions change. They want to change museums, music centers. They want to change how the art world works. But as you're aware, 
these institutions have been there a long time. There's a lot of legacy activity and culture baked into them. And so my bet was that entrepreneurship and getting these students to really think about how they're going to begin new ventures was a way to see that change happen, start something new and grow it rather than try and turn the juggernauts ever so slowly around in the directions that these students wanted to go. So I'd been focused on entrepreneurship for a while. And through a mutual colleague, Joey and I were put in touch And originally, I sort of invited Joey to come and present the idea of inversion art to one of the entrepreneurship classes that I was running at the time. But by that point, I'd seen maybe, I don't know, 100, 200 pitches from students and other people about new ventures that they were going to start in the art world. And so I had a pretty good idea about what looked and smelled like it was going to work. And of course, it took an actual professional entrepreneur to come in the door and pitch something (laughs) that seemed like it made a lot of sense, right? Someone who had actually thought through from the business model standpoint and the operational standpoint, the way something could work in the long term, rather than, again, with my students who are fantastic, but often very idealistic about how many audience members or how many users they were going to sign up to some new app that was going to help them connect artists to new collectors or to find galleries or to sell their work and these types of things for which I've probably seen 99 out of 100 fail <laughs> when it came down to it. So it was refreshing when Joey had come along to present what Inversion was doing at the time. Yeah, well, the flip side of that entrepreneurship coin, right, is hopefully innovation, right? And right. it seems like we all know this and your students know this, that the art world is ripe for innovation. We've had one predominant business model for many decades. And for all kinds of reasons, the planets have aligned in such a way that, you know, it's a space that's really ripe for disruption and innovation. And so entrepreneurs like Joey are so crucial to that conversation. And with his pedigree and his experience, he was sort of the right guy at the right time to think about this. And Joey, when you and I met, obviously we had a great conversation and you shared with me your vision, everything that you were doing. But for our listeners' sake, let's go back to the very beginning and Tell us again the problem that you saw and the problem you're trying to solve with inversion art. What's that pain point? What's that friction that inversion art is trying to help mitigate? Well, I think I've been in tech startups for 20 years and and had personally experienced how hard it is when you have a new idea or traction in the market, like how hard it still is to get funding for new concepts and ideas, to learn what you need to learn in order to scale an operation. And I was fortunate enough in 2011 to go through a very profound funding program out of Silicon Valley. If you're in the tech space, you'll know it, Y Combinator. And it just, it changed my life. They mentor you for three months and ongoing. You can schedule time with the advisory team just about anytime you want. They mentor you, they give you capital, they make key introductions to other partners. They do all kinds of great things for entrepreneurs. And it's really changed the landscape. I mean, they've helped launch, I think, something like 4,000, 5,000 companies now. And and many of them, most people know them, Reddit and Coinbase and Airbnb and Dropbox. I mean, they've changed people's lives. They've helped launch very, very big organizations. But when I'm not working on tech stuff, I'm an artist. And I've always been like an artist of some kind or another. I, I had a band, which is the impetus for the last company I built, which is the one that got funded by Y Combinator. I had been in a band. I've been a spoken word artist. I've done a lot of different things on the creative spectrum. And and then in 2018, I got really serious about painting again. It was something I did as a kid. I picked it back up in 2018 and started getting really excited and passionate about painting. And that's when somebody kind of floated this idea that maybe artists needed a program like the one that I went through. 
And that just sounded incredible. I have never tried to be a professional artist, but I understand how hard it is. You're sitting there with a painting you've spent hours and hours and hours on. You don't know how to price it. You don't know how to think about it. You may be starting to get collector interest in selling works for a few thousand dollars, and that's great. But you still feel very much like you're not in control of your own career. You don't know what is the strategy and steps that it takes to get to the next place and all of these things. And mostly artists don't want to be dealing with the business of their studios. I mean, we we certainly talk to artists who are capable and maybe even enjoy certain aspects of it. But for the most part, it takes them away from the most important thing, which is creating phenomenal art. And so I just looked at this, talked to a lot of artists, started interviewing gallery owners and curators and collectors and, and all kinds of people in the space just trying to understand Were there any solutions out there and artists just weren't tapping into them? Or how does an artist who's getting some success take control of their own career and take that to the next level, scale up their operations and everything else? And what I found is that there's a lot of really well-meaning nonprofits in the space who maybe offer a residency or certain kind of classes to teach artists how to do their own accounting and things like that. But you know, at the end of the day, that's not what artists necessarily want. They want to create art and they wish they had a team of people behind them. They wish they had the capital to invest into bigger studio space or more materials and things like that. And so there was a clear need in the space for a similar program to the one I'd gone through, but designed to meet the unique needs of artists. So that's essentially what we're trying to do is take artists who are already starting to achieve success and help them take control at that moment and ensure long-term success be able to scale, take their studio to the place that they want to take it and make the kind of work that they want to make. That's our goal is to free up these artists to make their greatest work and to have long lasting careers that produce great outcomes for them. Well, I'm guessing most artists listening right now are starting to salivate and (laughs) really wonder like how the heck they get involved with Inversion Art. What is the enrollment process, the onboarding process? I'm guessing there is a process that artists go through for you to evaluate uh, who qualifies for your program. Take us through that. How are you selecting your artists? Well, I think the number one thing for the artists that are out there who are probably thinking, I don't know anybody who works at Inversion Art. How would I even get it considered for this program? We're going to have an open call. And that's how the program I went through works. They accept applications from around the world and they invest in entrepreneurs from just about anywhere. That's how our program will work. Certainly, we have an advisory board who's going to help us make these decisions. And there's some things we look at and that we're looking for. But at the end of the day, the application process is open to everybody. Everybody's art and studio will get an honest look from our team. And we really hope that at least two thirds of the artists that we pick for our cohort come in through that open call process. Some of them are coming in because they've been recommended by people we know. And then we may start a conversation and we've chosen a few artists that way. But as somebody who got into the program that I got into off of an application without having any connections, it's super important to me that that always be a way that an artist can get into our program. It's incredibly important that this be something that is not, you know, you have to know the gatekeepers to get in. Certainly, there is some gatekeeping. Obviously, you have to be selected. But if you apply for our program, we will look at your work and we will give it an honest chance at at getting in. Just to add to that, I'd say that The artists that we're looking for, we have some basic criteria for who can sort of come in through the front door and the open call process. But we should say that we're looking at artists of all disciplines, whether it's painting, sculpture, photography, conceptual, a whole sort of range of activities. I think we know that many ambitious artists don't 
limit themselves to just one medium at a time. There are people who maybe consider themselves painters or sculptors primarily, but we know that people work across various different mediums. And so we don't have any kind of requirements along those lines. But we found that the artists that can really benefit from inversion are the ones who are ambitious and they want to build a studio operation and they want to execute projects that are often larger than the scope of what just a single artist in their studio doing all of their own work and all their own logistics can do. We're looking for artists who want to be the kind of leader of their own creative practice and are looking for the capacity to direct others to help them to do that. This is not to say that we want them to build these kind of cottage industries or businesses, but many of the most successful artists that are out there today, the ones that have major museum exhibitions all over the world, are at the head of a fairly significant studio operation. It may be five, eight, 10, 20 people, maybe even as big as 40 or 50 people, but it's certainly not them alone in some attic garret making their own paints, filing their own brushes, doing all this stuff solo in the hopes that one day they're going to be discovered and that they'll be able to kind of have that kind of creative production that has been largely a cliche for the last 150 years. That's just not the way that art practices work any longer. Yeah. So to be clear, again, for those artists that are clamoring to get involved in this open call, if I'm a painter, I'll role play, I'll, I'll play an artist here. If I'm a painter, but I have a great idea for a AI enabled app that somehow is either capable of helping me as an artist or making art or it's some better widget in the art space. Are you guys reviewing applications from artists in verticals beyond visual arts? So if I have that AI enabled app idea, are you going to entertain those kinds of ideas as well in terms of funding? So the long-term answer is yes. The short-term answer is that right now, the model we've designed, and we can talk more about how it works, is a combination of collecting work that we think will appreciate over time. So we might buy a painting today for $10,000 because we think there's a chance that in 10 years, it will be worth $1 million. So that's part of our model. And another part is that we provide services to these artists and support for a period of five years. And during that five years, we also have an income sharing agreement for 15% of what they earn. We provide their accounting, their legal, their tax filing, social media management, website updates, and things like that. So we basically provide services that keep them focused on their creative work and also provide with mentoring. We obviously make an initial investment of actual money into the studio. But right now, the model is a combination of this income sharing and the long-term appreciation of art that we collect. And both of those things are kind of necessary for the model we've designed today. So for any artist to get into this initial cohort in the next handful of cohorts, they need to be making work that we can collect and that we believe has a good chance of being worth money down the road. In the very near future, we'll be working with artists on the services side of what we do. Maybe they make already $150,000 from their practice doing more commercial work. They sold 10,000 prints of their last painting through some kind of online platform. And so they make very popular work. But it's not necessarily something that we feel like if we buy one of those prints, it's going to be worth a million dollars. I mean, they made 10,000 of them, right? That's two different, very different art markets. 
but we want to serve those artists. And so on the services side of what we do, we'll be working with a very wide variety of artists that we would not necessarily invest in and put through our three-month investment program, but who we believe have the potential to scale up their operations and they need some help and we might be able to help with that. And so we would work with them on sort of the services side of what we do, but not quite so much on the buying and collecting investment program side. So for an artist or artist entrepreneur that fits the description that you had, I think down the road, absolutely, we would love to support artists who are trying to do unique things. We've got an artist we're talking to right now who has a small apparel company that is tied into what she does as an artist. But she's an artist. She's like, I love that I got it as big as it is, but it's definitely not in my wheelhouse to run this apparel company. But she's got a creative practice and she's been in an important museum biennial. She's got interesting attention from collectors. So that's kind of the secret sauce for us to be able to invest in her using our current model, buy some of her work. But we're going to help her with this apparel business that she runs as well. And that's actually, we find artists like that really exciting. One of the artists on our board of advisors, actually Sterling Ruby, I mean, not only is an incredible artist making highly collectible work, but has his own fashion line. And it's a pretty big one at that. And, and, you know, he's got a lot of employees for his studio. And we hope that this artist we're speaking to, that's certainly the same trajectory she might be on is having a, a very successful apparel company and at the same time, an artistic studio. So we love that kind of diversification. But for the moment, our priority is on finding artists who make things that we can collect as well, because that's an important part of the early model. Yeah, I think that just to follow up on what Joey said, I think we've recognized that, especially after the pandemic, there was a kind of shift in mentality that artists are embracing more than just the gallery museum system. Fine artists, visual artists are embracing more than just the gallery museum model as the territory in which they want to define their own success. And so they are pursuing a lot of adjacent creative activities, small businesses, design activities getting involved in new types of commissions, partnerships with other creative activities and agencies, whether that's in tech or gaming or music or fashion or design. And we really want to support that. And Inversion is built to really be able to support that. But we also understand that all these artists also still think of themselves as artists and so are going to try and prove themselves at the same time within that kind of gallery museum model, but there's going to be more interesting dialogues between that space and the adjacent creative spaces that they're working in. And we're already beginning to see that with a lot of other younger artists, particularly. Yeah, it's an exciting time, isn't it, to be an artist in terms of being able to diversify your talents and your intellectual property in different channels and different products, what have you. I've joked over the last few years that, you know, if any consumer brand would be smart if they staffed an an artist (laughs) on their creative team or on their marketing team, because artists just see the world differently. And artists are perpetual generators of intellectual property, right? And so I can totally see how, of course, you guys have to phase in, but in phase two or phase three to turn on that switch that creates a incubator or a platform or a channel for that kind of innovation that is core to maybe their IP, but it's in a different space or something. Artists are just natural innovators, right? They're going to come up with ideas and to be able to create the space for those ideas to come to life and be monetized. I mean, that is a missing opportunity for artists these days. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I mean, we're already working with a handful of artists that we've decided to move forward with. And 
One of them is a fanatic about a particular type of board game. I'll just leave it at that. And that's a board game that's played all around the world by millions and millions and millions of people. And then Monopoly. Really, you know, <laughs> what? Yeah, it's not Monopoly, but you know. Sorry, right, sorry. Down. I just took a wild guess. No comment. Keep it down for now. Uh, but anyways, it's even bigger than Monopoly. I'll say that. Oh, okay, and so okay, good. I think this artist has been showing with a great gallery in New York City for a decade. They've got works owned by prestigious museums, but they're fascinated by this game and they make a lot of work that, whose aesthetic is informed by the game. And so we're putting together a partnership with the world championship of that game for this upcoming year, where our artist is going to design a a one of a kind board for the players to play on and all kinds of other interesting stuff. And this is just like sort of not the way that traditional galleries think about placing work or finding new opportunities, right? They're very, very used to selling, like the artist makes work, they go out and find collectors, maybe they might line up a commission and so on. But we're coming at this from a standpoint of understanding business development, partnerships, collaborations. And a lot of these things would have never been acceptable in the art world 10 years ago. Like the idea that you would collaborate with this sort of outside of the art world organization or, or whatever. A lot of that just wasn't as popular before. But now Julie Meritu is redesigning the Amex card and Tom Sachs is designing his own pair of Nikes. And there's just a lot of these really incredible fine artists that are looked at very fondly by the museum and institutional system who are now branching out of that and doing money-making collaborations with major brands. And the art world, sort of as it is, hasn't necessarily caught up to providing artists with opportunities like that. It wasn't particularly difficult for us to convince this partner that they should do a collaboration with one of the coolest artists in the world who loves their game. And so, you know, we just looking at opportunities differently than they've been looked at before and and hopefully going to line up a lot of really fun things for our artists to be part of and unlock new financial opportunities for them, right? I mean, there's a decent amount of money to be made in this collaboration and and that's just awesome. We get to work with a a new organization, find a new space to operate in and, and make interesting things happen. And that's what we're really excited about at Inversion is that we're not a gallery. We're not even a sales platform. We put together this collaboration and we may even partner with a gallery to help us execute on that. So it's just a a lot of out of the box thinking that is pretty new to the art world. Yeah. Well, that bumps into licensing, doesn't it? And just the opportunity around artists to license their IP, whether it's to brands or to some other manufacturer or what have you, that seems like a no brainer for you guys uh, in terms of being able to negotiate those kinds of deals. Yeah. And that's just that, you know, Jonathan, his background in, in business and my background in business. I mean, those are the kinds of things that come easy to us, but don't come easy to an artist, right? They don't know who to right. reach out to, how to reach out to people, how to negotiate a deal, how to structure a partnership proposal, things like that. And so I think it's just fun and exciting to come in with a lot of business yeah. experience and then lend that to artists to help them do things that's a little outside of their wheelhouse to take care of for themselves. Right. Yeah. I was just going to add that one of the things that sort of important to note here is that for any of the artists that we work with, the licensing, collaborations, the other opportunities, these are driven by the artists themselves. And one of the things that we are doing is we're running an accelerator program, a a three-month program that for artists is going to be a little bit like a residency. It's a little bit like a leadership retreat. It's a little bit like a tech accelerator But the core to that is unlocking and having some serious conversations with the artists about how they define success for themselves. What do they want out of their creative practice and how do they want to get there? 
And for some of the artists we work with, licensing is not even going to be part of the picture, right? There's just no sense that the kind of work that they do is ever going to make it into a multiple, is going to be thought of as intellectual property to be distributed in any way except through the mediums that that artist is working on. But there might be another artist who's very amenable to that. Mm -hmm. And our model allows us to support the artist's vision because the model is designed to help them achieve the success that's best for them. Uh And our bet is that by doing that, by supporting the artist's version of success, rather than trying to mold it towards either the market or mold it towards what the institutions sort of define as success or what the art world continues to define as success. If you have the artist who is able to achieve what it is that they have sort of decided is in their wheelhouse, the type of recognition that they want, the type of revenue that they want, the type of operation they want to build, whatever it might be, we think that if we can support the artists in achieving how they've defined their own success, that the audience and the market and the institutions, everybody else will follow to a certain extent. Mm, mm. And not everybody's going to knock it out of the park. Not everybody is going to be a unicorn in the vernacular of Silicon Valley. But We think that it's going to be better than what you have currently where artists are sort of put into a batch where it's like either commercial and populist and public or it's fine art, it's scarce, it's the gallery, it's the museum, right? Nothing in between except for like a couple people doing interesting stuff here and there which don't really find their place. We think that there's a lot of room for artists to be independent and to do fantastic, interesting, ambitious work. And that when you do it, it'll gain recognition, it'll gain adherence, it'll gain support, you'll find the money to help make it happen, they'll increase the revenues, they'll increase their profile and their reputation, the work that they have been making will become more valuable, it'll appreciate those assets, and ultimately we will be in a position to support them and also benefit from that success. Yeah, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I mean, the phrase that keeps coming to mind is that you guys are going to help artists be artists. You're going to let artists be artists. And two lifetimes ago, I was involved in a a marketing project for a healthcare company called Kaiser Permanente. And their doctors go to Kaiser to practice medicine because they want to be doctors, not because they want to be entrepreneurs and run an office. And so Kaiser's pitch to young doctors coming out of medical school was come here where you can be a doctor and not worry about all of the accounting and all of the stuff, right? The business back office stuff. And I've been remembering that as I'm listening to you talk, because that sort of feels like a wonderful value prop for you guys. And that that's what you're doing. You're creating a space, a platform, if you will, for artists to come and be a better version of themselves. Yeah, actually, the woman who introduced me and Joey originally defined it as a sort of 21st century model of patronage without being patronizing. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And, And in a way... Certainly, there are plenty of sort of neo-aristocracy out there that can certainly support artists in the way that the old school aristocracy used to support artists as patrons and simply provide a nice stipend and a kind of independent lifestyle close to the money to lead. But those times are also long gone. And so with Joey's background from the venture field, the real innovation here is a business model, which I think uses the best of capitalism and entrepreneurship and new venture creation to create a kind of institutionalized patronage model that's different from what you have from museums, different from residency programs, different from grant-making organizations, and different from simply the sort of collector market, even though it makes use of or is sort of part of all of those things at once. 
It's an astute observation, Scott, the doctor comparison, because these are people who spend a decade in school to become doctors, and many of them might go off and start private practices, but none of their education during that 10 years is about how to run a business charging customers thousands of dollars for healthcare and marketing their private practice and staffing it and all of these things. And we've all probably walked into a dentist's office or a doctor's office and felt like this place has just run horribly, right? Like this is so unorganized. These people don't know what they're doing. The scheduling tool is terrible or whatever it is. And it's because they're doctors, right? They're not necessarily entrepreneurs or business managers. And the same thing for dentists. And my sister's got an MFA in dance. She's got the best degree you can get in dance. And yet she didn't learn anything about running a dance studio, but that's what she does now. She's got a private dance studio and she doesn't know about managing the studio or marketing or any of these things. And it's great that there are organizations out there teaching people how to do those things. I mean, certainly it's better if they're more educated about it. But at the end of the day, anytime a doctor is spending setting up a new SaaS tool is time he's not talking to a patient, right? And anytime my sister is like, you know, trying to learn how to manage her own social media, it's time she's not running her own another class that earns her income, right? And so we look at it as like, look, there's a lot of professions out there. And in this case, fine artists, visual artists, where they're trained to make works that can be valued at a million dollars, but no one's teaching them how to run a million dollar studio operation, right? And and so I think that's where we're trying to fill in that gap is, look, we want to pick up where MFAs leave off. And rather than necessarily that being teaching these people everything about how to run these businesses, which actually, I mean, from the mentorship and from the view they're going to get of how we're approaching their studio, our goal is that at the end of our five-year arrangement, if they don't want to work with us anymore, we're going to hand off to them an incredibly streamlined and efficient operation where they can just hire a new studio manager who just picks up that operation and runs with it. All the processes are clear and everything is working well and everything else. So yeah, I mean, it's really about serving these people who are in these fields where they're learning how to create something incredible or do something incredible, but not necessarily how to run businesses. And I think one of the other things is that a lot of artists are in the same scenario, but they don't have either colleagues or resources or contacts outside of the art world that can provide the kind of experience and intelligence that you might just get if you had a sort of a broader professional group of people who maybe were like lawyers and accountants and small business owners or entrepreneurs or other people who have gone through these experiences. For many of these artists, they've kind of been artists their entire lives, right? I mean, we joke that many of them are just born that way. And so they just can't help but be makers. And they know that this is something that they're going to go into. And even if they sort of approach this professional world with a certain amount of tentativeness, because they're worried about being able to make a living, they go to graduate programs with other artists, they spent their time in their communities with other artists. And so you get to a certain point in your professional career, and you're like, how do I set up a studio? And they can only then look to other artists in their community for that intelligence, right? And many artists get that by working for other more senior, more successful artists. They get that kind of mentorship and a more old school apprenticeship style experience. Some get it by going to an MFA program and having a favored faculty member who takes them under their wing and sort of helps them with the ins and outs of what it means to actually run a studio. But that's not a system right? I mean, that's just the culture of the environment that's out there. And the artists that we've talked to over the last year and a half, many of them, they're doing well. They've got a studio. They feel like they've got the basics of their operation, but it's like they can't get out of second gear, right? I mean, the work may be 
cruising along and they may be doing exceptional stuff and they may be getting some gallery shows and they're getting attention from curators and they feel like they have what is the kind of rudiments of success as it's identified by the art world establishment. But they're sort of looking around and be like, I can't scale. How do I move to the next point? How do I sort of take advantage of what I've got in the next six months and really begin to accelerate? And it's difficult for them to figure out how to do that because they don't have a community of people who are also interested in doing that or have the experience of how to do it, right? right? What is that sort of zero to one moment for these artists? And so we not only help them figure that out strategically, but put them in a community and around other artists who are one, yes. either have figured it out themselves or are interested in figuring it out, right? Are willing to have that conversation yeah. with each other. Because there's another sense in the art world that artists are like very unwilling to share with one another, like when they've either had success or when they're not having it, why it's not working, why that conversation with this person didn't happen. I mean, it's just like any creative field, right? It's like the one that gets made fun of maybe the most is like Hollywood with like the struggling actors trying to make it seem like they're doing better than they might actually be doing. I think Silicon Valley has come in for some of that drubbing more recently too. But you know, every, every field where you have ambitious, creative people trying to build something new, trying to create something new, it's a difficult environment. And so having a community of people who you're doing it with, who can support one another, have open and honest conversations and provide that support, not just monetary support, but an actual sort of knowledge base and intellectual support is huge. You can see the artists breathe a palpable sigh of relief as soon as they sort of realize like, oh, I don't have to be alone out there. Right? Yeah. Like I don't have to be doing it just by myself. Well, and exactly. And thanks to organizations like Inversion, that's changing, right? Because historically, being a studio artist, painter, sculptor, I mean, it is by nature a very lonely existence. And if you're an actor, you probably, if you're a theater actor, you you end up going to New York. If you want to be on screen, you come to Hollywood and you meet lots of other actors because it's sort of consolidated into a specific locale. And so there's a community there. Whereas if you're a visual artist, a painter, sculptor, whatever, there's like a diaspora of artists. And it's like, where do you live? And, and is there a community of artists there to share? I call them water cooler moments, right? I mean, they just, artists have a hard time. They, it's, it's hard to get that water cooler moment, right? In terms of being able to talk to colleagues, talk to people and problem solve together. Because I think a lot of times artists feel like they're the only ones dealing with this problem. When in fact, no, <laughs> there's right. many artists that have solved that problem already, right? That's right. And this is what the MFA programs for a long time have both promised and delivered on, right? I mean, the whole point for many artists of going to, in many cases, a relatively expensive graduate program is to get a credential and to get a community and to get some mentorship. And the best programs do that very well, but the kind of mentorship and the kind of community they get is really about honing their creative work, right? Their thought process and getting to a kind of a breakthrough in their painting or their sculpture or whatever it is that they're trying to do as an artist. But there's very little conversation, at least historically, there's been very little conversation in those environments about, okay, when you have that breakthrough, who is it a breakthrough for? How is it going to be supported? Who is going to be paying for it? How do you capitalize on that breakthrough and continue and still the model today is like, oh, you're going to have that breakthrough and a gallery is going to give you a show and then that's going to sell and you're going to get some money and you're just going to sort of continue on that little treadmill and everything's going to be great. And eventually you'll get a solo exhibition at a museum and, and so on and so forth. And we just know that that's not a model that works. For most artists, there's a lot of other 
paths that they can go down and find success and do really incredible work. They just need to get beyond that first moment of community building, which has been all about their creative practice. We think that's very important, but there's a whole nother community that's now going to be out there about how do we take that creative practice to the next level? How do we give you an operation so that you can really spend time thinking about it rather than just working on deadlines for art fairs and exhibitions for the next five years without having any sort of interstitial time to even think about what the next move might be or what's going to transform in your practice? And not to mention that, as we all know, and I'm guilty of it as anybody, higher education is expensive, right? I mean, credential community and mentorship for $50,000 a year or $100,000 of debt when you're going forward, it's just not sustainable. It's just simply not sustainable. And we know that more and more artists today are not buying into that pathway and can't afford to. But they still need the community and the mentoring and everything that, right. that comes with that. But that's what's interesting. I mean, the program I went through a lot of people consider it an alternative to an MIT degree or a Harvard degree because rather than go spend $200,000 on, on an MBA, I can go there. They're going to give me thousands, if not now it's 500000 for that program. You know, They're going to give me $500,000 and then sit down with me for three months and teach me about business and then connect me with great partners and other venture capitalists who will also support me and all of these things. At this point, it's, it's just a, it's a great alternative for those who don't. I mean, you know, it can be supplemental. There's no question. Having both can be beneficial, but not everybody comes from a financial background where they can afford the former. And so having access to do something similar and have the credential that your artistic practice was chosen by a very well-known panel of people, that being vouched for by our team is its own credential. And then the community that we have, all of these things, very similar to what you might get from going to university, except that if you made $50,000 last year, we're going to give you 15000 as an investment as opposed to charge you a hundred. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's a systemic issue, right? And you guys are addressing a core part of that. Who's that? Who's that trying to, to uh, say hi? Is that? <laughs> it was me. I muted myself. Sorry. No, about don't that. worry about it. We love dogs. Are you kidding me? <laughs> We're dog friendly here at Not Real Art. So the point, it's a systemic issue. You guys are obviously one very interesting, compelling, exciting solution to part of the systemic issue here that artists grapple with. To kind of build on our doctor analogy, you think about what it means to be a physician and how important, for example, communication is in the doctor-patient relationship, right? And yet medical schools historically have never taught communication. <laughs> so doctors come out and can't communicate, right? And now I know medical schools are starting to change that. They're starting to teach interpersonal <laughs> communication with docs. They're smart people. They'll figure it out. But the same is true in art school, right? I mean, artists come out of art school. They're not generally taught anything about business. And it, let alone the industry. I mean, it'd be one thing, and I know like SCAD, for example, is now layering in business classes. My alma mater, Columbia College out of Chicago, historically always taught business as a core. You had to do it. Yep. So at the very least, art schools should be teaching artists about the industry and the business of art. How does it work? Who are the players? What's the culture? And it's all changing, thankfully, and changing because of innovators such as Inversion Art. Yeah, I think that I'm a creature of a, of a studio art program, essentially, right? I went to architecture school originally, mm -hmm. and there was very, very little 
even in architecture school about the business of architecture, right? Mm, Famously, yeah. we have structures to make sure that you know, the things that you design don't fall down. But even that, I wouldn't trust someone who's straight out of architecture school to design something like that. And indeed, we don't. They collaborate with a lot of people. You have engineers who help make sure that your buildings aren't going to collapse. There is something to be said for the dynamic of art schools that put a premium on artistic excellence, right? That they really want to drill down into what it is at the core of their either mediums or disciplines or what it actually means to make advanced creative work that can stand on its own and that can also rise above the kind of din of just however you want to call it, basically kind of like bubblegum work that's easily out there, easily consumed. That's not simply entertainment, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in that. I still think that there is, obviously we're doing this with a sense of wanting to support artists who have a real sense of this kind of artistic excellence. Schools themselves have always been focused on this. There was a lot of pressure on those schools to try and transform their curriculums and to provide some of that business acumen because we're recognizing that the economic environment into which these artists are being delivered is simply one that it's no longer possible to sustain oneself reproduce oneself without some sort of viable income, some way of, of living in the world. And art is a super difficult way of doing it. Any creative activity is a super difficult way of doing it. Being a novelist, being a visual artist, being an architect, these are tough fields to achieve in. So I want to make sure that we establish that, right? That many of these schools, many of these environments, that we are firm believers in artistic excellence and achievement and distinction, right? This is not populist that like everybody can be an artist and that you can all make millions of dollars doing it. It's not some sort of environment where it's like if a couple schools just flicked a couple switches, then all the artists would be out there selling paintings. By definition, true talent is genuinely scarce and needs to be remunerated as such, right? And also from a mentality standpoint, even I remember when I was going through one of these programs, I couldn't be bothered with the Excel spreadsheet. You couldn't be bothered with trying to think about what the budget for one of these projects would be. I couldn't be bothered. It's like, it's just not where my mentality was. And it's not where our artists' mentalities are. They're mm. certainly capable, very intelligent, but you want them able to focus on the artistic excellence, the creative practice, what it is they want to do. And you need to provide them the room to do that. And that's sort of inversions model of providing this operational support is exactly designed to create that space so the artist can pursue that excellence, but maintain their independence from the other players in the marketplace so that they don't feel like they are beholden to their galleries. They don't feel like they're simply beholden to the institutional structures. They're not just beholden to a marketplace that wants one type of work and only one type of work and doesn't allow for any new creative expression coming from that artist. We want the artist to identify the excellence that they want to achieve yeah. and then provide them the support in order for them to be able to achieve it. And it's not just about how to make more money or how to build a larger operation or thing like that. Right, right, right. And I should say that there are many, many different art worlds. Yes. And yes. they are merging today and they're expanding today. We often get conversations from people that we talk to about, oh, are you, are you working with NFT artists? which I don't think is a real thing. I mean, there are artists who make NFTs, there are artists who make digital work. And there's some people who eight months ago or 12 months ago were like, the old art world is over. It's all digital now. <laughs> and you know, obviously that looks pretty funny from today's perspective. Oh, but yeah. that said, 
we thought it was great. Like, I think it's great that there are now artists who have been working in a dimension of creative practice that for a long time only had outlets of recognition that were in subcultural worlds online, maybe some attention from the gaming industry and other places. And now there was a moment where these people sort of broke out of the lab and got recognition from the big institutions, from the auction houses and from other marketplaces, which create real viable careers. I think that's fantastic, right? That's important because that means that there's a whole nother dimension of creative activity that's going to be available to artists who never worked in that space. And there's going to be a dimension of remuneration and recognition and also creative activity that's available to artists who never thought that they could get a show at a museum doing the kind of work that they made. That's fantastic. That's just making that art world bigger, incorporating more people, more practices. It's making it more democratic in a sense. But again, there is going to be better and worse work (laughs) that is made. There is going to be more and less valuable work. and We are firmly in the camp of trying to help artists advance towards the better work, the more valuable work, the more successful careers. Well, I I can't help but think about the old uh, product segmentation idea of good, better, best, right? And helping artists think about how their work might create. What does that mean for an artist to have good work versus their best work? Because not everybody can afford a $10,000 original painting, but they can afford a $20 keychain or a $100 print or whatever the case might be. I, I often tell artists, be your own gift shop. There's no shame in it. Every museum of note has a gift shop. You could be your own gift shop. But this idea of helping artists think about these things, but also from an inversion art standpoint, I mean, you guys absolutely have a reputation to consider and you want to, uh, as you already have done, position yourself as a leading premium tier one kind of organization. And there's no way around the 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, 30,000 hours that excellence requires. Right. And I think we would also, I think that in our sort of strategic advising of our artists, we would say there's no shortcut to the gift shop. I think it's great advice to say that every artist should be their own gift shop. I think for the artists that we're working with, our goal would for them to become such important, relevant, and well-known artists that they would be represented in every gift shop around the world, despite their own best efforts, perhaps not to be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right? The goal is to become, through the sheer force of your own creative interests and pursuit of your own direction, that the rest of the world is dragged along behind you and every museum is clamoring to put your work up for their audiences and every collector around the world is clamoring to have some piece of what it is that you have produced, either hanging on their walls or sitting in cold storage in their digital wallets or wherever it's <laughs> going to be. You know, because, because at some point, somebody wants to say that they were on board with this thing when it was on its way to becoming globally relevant. And then once that global relevance happens, that's when the postcards end up outside the museums. Exactly. We're we're all for that. But yeah, then maybe we've got baby steps, people, baby steps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) First things first. Maybe maybe we'd have a couple couple conceptual artists who would go to, you know, (laughs) making those postcards to begin with. Just Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it is an exciting time to be an artist for all these reasons. And inversion art is also one of those reasons. It's an exciting time to be an artist. You guys are really bringing such positivity and innovation, real problem-solving value 
I think, for artists who just want to be artists. And so I'm a fan. Anything we can do over here at Novel Art to help support what you guys are doing and spread the word. I was really looking forward to having you guys come on, take time out of your busy schedule to help honor the work you're doing and tell your story. Before we sign off, I mean, you get the last word. What does our audience need to know moving forward here? I would just say this is that, as Jonathan noted earlier, there's a lot of different art worlds. And I think, you know, there's street art and there's more commercial art and licensing deals. And then there's the kind of work that you walk into a museum and it's, it's you know, 20 feet wide by 10 feet tall. And there's galleries who represent all kinds of different work. And one thing I would say is that it's important to just sort of understand, like, what do you value and what kind of career do you want? Because if it's really important to you to end up in these museums, there are certain things you wouldn't want to do in your career that could hinder your chances of that trajectory. And there are things that you need to do in order for that to be more successful. But some of those things are exactly the opposite if you want to pursue another path, right? Like if you want to be a museum fine artist, you probably shouldn't be producing 10,000 prints of any one work of yours. But if you want to be a commercial artist and 10,000 people want to buy one of your prints, that's fantastic, right? That's success. And so I think the thing is, is that there are certain paths where, for example, if you're selling 10,000 prints at $20 a piece, all you need to do is convince somebody to part with $20, right? But if you are trying to get into museums, it's, it's a very different process. There's more gatekeeping and there's a lot of other things. And, and a lot of your career is now placed in the hands of others to decide. And so one thing I would say is like for a lot of artists, they just need to know what kind of things are important to them in terms of where they end up, what kind of success is important to them. Are they just looking to feed a family? Are they looking to be wealthy? Are they looking to be recognized? What do they want? And I think, you know, it's important to start thinking about those things pretty early because the data kind of shows that the things that you do in early in your career can have a pretty big impact on your career in the long run. And so for those people who are like listening to this podcast and thinking, this program sounds incredible, but I like painting flowers and, you know, I mostly do it for fun. And it turns out that a lot of people like it. I've sold 500 prints of my favorite piece. And that's really exciting to me. I don't know if my work's ever going to be in a museum and worth a million dollars, but that's okay. Unless you're dying to have that validation, that's totally fine. And I just think people ought to recognize that there's lots of different paths to lots of different types of success in the art world. And that just because one of those paths is blocked by some gatekeeper doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be successful in, in whatever way is important to you. So I would just encourage artists to think about what kind of artist they want to be, what they want their career to look like, and then research what is important to think about when managing your career in that way. And just know that if it sounds like our program is too advanced for where you're at, but it's something you're interested in, there's some things you can be doing early on to give yourself a better chance in the future and things like that. So I think it's just important for artists to think about the business of what they do. A lot of times people tell you, well, just make great work and the rest will solve for itself. But that's not really the case. I think they ought to know what they're shooting for. And there's different paths to getting there. And I think that there's some value in researching those things early on and making sure you understand what you want to have happen and have a plan. Start to put together some pieces, some steps, some benchmarks. What am I going to do this year that's going to further that plan? What am I going to do next year that's going to further that plan? And be happy with the plan you design for yourself because it's what you want. And don't let other people tell you what you should want or what art world success is. Yeah, agreed. Being a great artist means you have to make great art. And the great art is necessary, but it's not sufficient to become a great artist. Wise, sage words to wrap up with today, guys. Jonathan Neal, Joey Flores, thank you for coming on and telling the story of Aversion Art. Joey, as you know, I've been a fan for a while and just so thrilled 
for the progress you've made and not just thrilled for you, my friend, but thrilled for the artists that are going to go through your program because from what I could tell, it's going to be a real lever for them to step up and, and grow in their practice and in their business. Guys, thanks for coming on. Appreciate, Appreciate your it. time. Come back, please, someday and give us another update. I'll follow up maybe in a year's time and get you guys back on and see how things are going. But don't go anywhere. We're going to sign off, but want to chat with you about something. So hang tight. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.